there's such a huge opportunity for investment at the local level. That's the way to grow our democracy is people building power and talking to their neighbors and voting in local elections and running for local office and attending local meetings. And I think we've lost a lot of that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Aviva Rossman, co-founder and COO at Ballot Ready, a company that provides information and tools to help people vote. Ballot Ready aggregates data from every level of government and helps make it actionable via accessible products to help citizens participate in civic life. Aviva had not planned to become a political entrepreneur, but with former guest on the show, Alex Nimshevsky, she has built a significant, sizable, and growing enterprise. It was very interesting to hear her path and to find out about what Ballot Ready is doing now and wants to do next. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Aviva Rossman with Ballot Ready. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Aviva, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, it's great to be here. My name is Aviva. I'm COO and co-founder of Ballot Ready. And I grew up outside of Boston. My mom is a rabbi. My dad does healthcare policy. He works for a state legislator right now in Massachusetts. And growing up, the joke was people always ask me, oh, do you want to be a rabbi like your mom? And I would say, no, I want to be a healthcare policy analyst like my dad. So I was exposed to politics a lot growing up. Being in Boston, we would drive up to New Hampshire before the primaries and we would do the circuit, hit all of the candidates as they came through. And one of my earliest memories of campaigning is in middle school, we drove up to knock on doors for Gore in New Hampshire. And, you know, if Gore had won New Hampshire, he wouldn't have needed Florida. So I felt this immense sense of failure. (laughs) Like if I had only knocked on a couple more doors, that would have swayed the election. Did you see any of those torchlight parades up there? Did you ever go in the evening? That was a very old tradition. I, I remember going up in 96 when it was dull, Clinton. We never saw any torchlights, but I saw Bill Bradley. I mean, I saw Howard Dean. It was always snowing. We'd be in like a, a you know, gymnasium or we'd be, there was one time uh, we stood out uh, outside and it was snowing. We were peering in through the window to try and see. I think that was when George Bush came through. Were you engaged with this or was this just something you were dragged to do or no i mean i i was so excited i i thought it was amazing i got to see all these people up close um in a gymnasium and shake their hand things like that in those primaries that there is this intense interest and you just watch the press alone following the candidates you know with all of their equipment and sort of trying to get one little quote from somebody 
uh, and these these were packed halls, you know, on a Sunday, and there was ten events going on for all the different candidates. In high school, my dad and I we traded in our frequent flyer miles. We flew down to Florida for Carrie. It was something called Operation Bubby. So the idea was get out the Jewish grandmother vote, um, and we spent two weeks there knocking on doors. I came back. I had incompletes in two classes because I just had not been doing my homework. And my dean actually pulled me out and said, you know, you're normally a good student. What's going on? And I said, well, there's this election. Again, was not successful in flipping Florida that year. But I graduated, went to University of Chicago. That's where I met my co-founder, Alex. What did you major in? I majored in public policy. Originally, it was going to be political science, but I had this realization that I cared a lot about the policy side of things. Um, and yeah, I love that. I love D Chicago. And tell me about meeting Alex. How did you know each other in college? So Alex was my orientation aide. She's a year above me. So I met her my first week and she actually took me to my first party because I'd never been to a party before. I said, I'm not going to like it. And she said, no, I promise you, you'll have a good time. And she was right. I did. Was there any indication that you would be friends or you know, partners down the road? Like, was there any compatibility that you felt or? No, I mean, we had a similar group of friends who were in the same dorm, but we are, we became friends later when we started this. I think a lot of people from college are surprised that the two of us hooked up and are doing this very intense thing right now. I, I interviewed her a couple of years ago and got to know her through that time and then became friends subsequently. So I, I feel like I, can ask this kind of question, which is like, it's difficult to, to be partners in business, just like it is a marriage or, or anything like that. How much do you have to put up with, with Alex and how, <laughs> how difficult the person is she really? I don't think she's difficult. I, so in college, I, my impression of her was she, she was a philosophy major and she had this like very deep, serious voice to me at the time. And I just thought she was so smart and so intense and I was a little intimidated. I think anything when you become partners in business, it is like a marriage. And it's even more so difficult because at least when you get married, you've had all these years of dating and learning to live together and you know each other's faults. And so we've done a lot of work to know what's she good at? What am I good at? How do we give each other feedback? Um, how come she got to be CEO and you had to be COO? Is that because of the seniority there? It was her idea. She started building the website. I was in grad school at the time and just got involved because I thought it was fun. So I went back to University of Chicago to get my master's in public policy. You can see there's a theme. But I, I really didn't think I was going to do this. I my lifelong dream was to be a bureaucrat and to work and stay in the local government. And I was just doing this thing for fun. And actually, I thought I was going to graduate and go off. I'd gotten this job to be a public sector consultant at Deloitte. And so I was just doing this thing for fun. And then I was going to go off and do this. And she was all in. I mean, she was doing this full time. And I was doing it full time and taking classes. But essentially what happened is we had a lawyer who was drawing up all these docs and knew I was going to Deloitte. And she told one of our investors and our investor said, what do you think I'm investing in? <laughs> this company is the two of you. This company isn't, there isn't something more to it. What do you mean you're going to Deloitte? And so I ended up deferring for a year to see where it went. And then I ended up declining and I had to pay back my signing bonus, but I don't regret that decision. Tell me your version of the founding story then. What what 
got this off the ground. I mean, she, it sounds like she had the idea and, and really got committed to it. But from, from your perspective, how did it get going? I ran for very local office in Chicago. Every school in Chicago has an elected body that can hire and fire the principal and approve the school budget. It's a really fascinating system. And so I was running and I asked Alex to come vote for me. And one of the reasons she was interested is there was a Trader Joe's that wanted to open up across the street from the school. And the alderman said, I will defer to this local school council whether we can open this Trader Joe's or not. Because the school, you know, there was all this traffic and they were worried about the liquor sales. And so Alex said, I want there to be a Trader Joe's in my neighborhood. I've never even heard of this body. So I ended up winning with 116 votes which just tells you how local this was. And Alex also did not show up to vote for me because she ended up being busy that day. But when she started building this website, I was her first call because she knew I had all this experience in local government. At what point do you think you got excited about it? Like, it sounds like you sort of gradually, you know, how a frog gets the heat, the water turned on. <laughs> sounds like you got boiled a little bit slowly. But when do you find yourself most like early on getting notably excited about what Ballot Ready was becoming? I was definitely, I was excited from the beginning, but it took me a while to realize this could be a company. This could be something I did full time. It just had never occurred to me. You know, I had a very set path and I'd gone to college and then I taught for four years and then I was going to grad school and then I was going to go to Deloitte and then from there I was going to go to state government. And so it just felt like this whole other direction of something I knew very little about. But in 2016, we had this voter guide up and my brother works in the Apple store and he was helping someone with their phone and suddenly they got an email from me saying, go check your voter guide. And he just could not believe it. He's like, that's my sister. <laughs> and I think that's the first moment where I just realized how big it was becoming beyond what I had imagined. For people who are not aware of Ballot Ready, what do you guys do? So we started off trying to solve a very specific problem, which is walking into a voting booth, thinking you're ready to vote for president and governor and senator, and just realizing there are many more things on the ballot. The first time I voted, I was actually working on a campaign. I took a semester off to work on a campaign in the northern suburbs in 2008. We also lost then. <laughs> so everyone was celebrating Grant Park, and I was just crying in a ballroom in Deerfield, Illinois. But the first time I voted, I clearly political engaged person. I had no idea that you voted for judges in Illinois, and I ended up skipping them. It felt like this test I wasn't prepared for. So that was the original problem we set out to solve. How do we make it really easy to see everything on your ballot and make an informed choice? And as we started solving that problem, we realized it was a symptom of a larger problem, which is that all of this information for who's on the ballot, how do you run for office, what are your polling places, who represents you, is stored non-digitally across you know 3,300 counties and local boards of election, townships and cities. And so what we do is we gather all that information. We have internal tools to do it, but we have to send faxes. Sometimes we get CD-ROMs. I talked to an intern yesterday who'd never heard of a CD-ROM. I had to explain what it was. But we put this in a giant database so that it can be used to power products, power software, like see a voter guide, register to vote, make a plan to vote, things like that, and then also available via API so people can build things off of it. It's one thing to have this idea and then start to implement things around it, a ballot guide and kind of have latent ambitions to do it well beyond Chicago. And it's another thing to take that and make it into a business because it's not obvious to me immediately how 
one can charge for this, how to get a business model that works. And I remember asking Alex about, you know, can you charge for your data? And she's like, yeah, actually, that's the way we do this. But tell me a little about how the idea for making it a business, something where more money's coming in than going out, hopefully happens. It was not obvious to us at the beginning what the business model should be. And we thought originally it would be something around polling and understanding how people made decisions. But we had partners come to us who said, we want to build a voter guide focused specifically on the environment, where candidates stand on the environment and our endorsements. And at the beginning, we said, well, you know, the key to a startup is focus. And we're focused on this polling idea. So we're not going to do that. And they said, but we, we want to pay you, um, which is, you know, a pretty good sign that you actually might have a business there. In some ways, it was an idea we always had, but weren't pursuing. But in other ways, we just stumbled on it. And the more we got into it, the more we realized how valuable this data is on elections and on candidates. And that's actually the part that's really useful. Anytime something's difficult to collect, that's when you often have something valuable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're a philosophy major and a public policy major. <laughs> You're starting a tech company, really, right? You're building a tech company. Yeah. Did you guys build all your tech yourself? At what point did you find certified engineers? How did that part of it go, the product building side? Alex went through a coding boot camp, so she built the first version herself. But very quickly, we had friends. So we did a hackathon in the beginning, and we built the first version of the site in a day. And I got all of my public policy friends to come, and I got them pizza, and they did all the research on all the Chicago Aldermanic candidates. And then Alex's friend built the website. But yeah, very early on, we had engineers helping us and building it. And along the way, I've learned... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about startups. I thought you had to pay the money back. I was really worried about how we were going to pay our investors back just with the money they gave us. But along the way, I've learned a lot about product and tech. And the nice thing is, there's lots of resources out there. And also, I just really enjoy now as more public policy people get into tech, being able to help them. What I've learned because I think part of the problem is tech companies exist to solve problems people know. And so if it's only a certain type of person who creates a tech company, they're only going to solve the problems that they're used to. I think public policy majors know a lot about uh, problems in the world, and it'd be good if more of them were starting tech companies. There certainly are not a majority of companies that are started by two female founders. Did that play any role, do you think, in how you were received for the good or for the bad? It definitely did. I think for good and for bad. I think the, the great side was we were introduced to a lot of really great mentors who were focused on female founders. And we went through this accelerator for companies with females in leadership. I think both Alex and me present ourselves humbly, or at least I'm very concerned with being honest and being exact. And I got this feedback early on that when male founders make a model, a financial model, this is how much money we're going to make. VCs discount it. They say, okay, well, they're saying they're going to make 100 million. We're going to cut that in half and say 50 million. And when I went through that exercise, I really tried to figure out how much money will I make? I want to be truthful. And I got the advice to, to not do that. It's okay to spin the story. And that, that's something I still work on. Um, but also part of me is like, that's okay. I can just present myself as myself. And that's 
who I want to be talking to investors or users or whoever I'm working with. I kind of feel more, even though I'm a, was a male founder, I kind of feel more like you. And I, I, I never pitched for money. I did. I bootstrapped my company, but I would rather talk to someone who I thought was not exaggerating if I'm an investor or uh, I don't know, potential employee or whatever. So. Yeah, I think so too. But it's just, I think it's different for the space. It, we did talk to one investor who said, you know, you don't sound like the people I normally talk to. And yeah. I think that was just the the shift. Yeah. Have you found the opportunity to become a mentor yourself or anything along that line now that you have a number of years under your belt leading? Yeah, I really enjoy that. So I've been a mentor for other female founders and also for other students at the public policy grad school program I went to because there's this whole social new venture challenge at University of Chicago. And a lot of times it's won by the business school students. And again, I just, I want more public policy students to win. What do you think is the advice that you found most useful for founders, really male or female, who have an aspiration to build an enterprise, but not really the experience around what it takes? What, what do you like to convey? I'm a very, not very, but I'm a risk averse person. I don't know if that's come through. I've had <laughs> this life plan that I'm not on anymore, but it was scary starting a company. And I think some people have a sense of you just have to quit your job and you just jump into the abyss and you pay an engineer in some country to build you this app. And the best advice I got is that you don't have to do that. You can test so many things along the way and validate assumptions before you continue to grow. And I think that discipline has really helped us in terms of here's a hypothesis we have. How do we test it? How do we test it without building something? The first voter guide we did was a paper voter guide. We just went around the city of Chicago having people take a look at it. And that was a great low tech way to learn a lot very quickly. When I did talk to Alex, she told me there were 18 people associated with the company, six full time. What's the answer to that question now? How big have you become? We are 40, 42 people full time right now. We're scaled up for the election. And then we have probably 100 additional part-time researchers who are doing this work of sending faxes and calling counties. How does that feel to have that number of people involves a lot more management. It involves a lot more leadership. It involves much more hierarchy. You reach challenges with N of 40 that you just don't have when you're five people. Communications internally is different. What have you learned as you've grown along the way about how to organize an enterprise? I'm still learning and adjusting because yeah, I feel like every time we grow, it requires me to be a different type of leader. Ideally, I'm staying ahead of it instead of reacting. This year, our big focus has been on transparency. How do we make it much clearer? Because there are a lot of decisions that Alex and I just make and I used to think, well, I should just make this decision. It doesn't, I don't want to distract people. And maybe I also sometimes was afraid, you know, how will people react to knowing about this and this decision? And what I've learned is it's just much easier to share everything and to be honest and to make it really clear and provide frameworks for people to understand how you made the decision and be clear about decision rights. But um, being remote, I think that context really helps. And then something I'm working on right now is when you start a startup and you're six people, what made me really successful as a leader was I would just grind and I would say, I, I can do this and I can do this. And I would just work really hard. And a lot of times I still have that mentality where I wake up and I say, well, 
I just want to get lots of things done. And it just, I'm checking things off and I'm being productive. And actually what the company needs right now is for me to spend a lot more time thinking about who should do this. It should not be me. Um, what kind of leader do I want to be? How do I carve out time to just think? And that feels uh, so indulgent to just spend a couple hours thinking um, without some clear outcome, but it's actually been really valuable. I've heard that described as working on the company, not in the company. Yes. Yeah. That's a distinction I just learned that I think is really valuable. Can you give me an example of that transparency that you said that you're shooting for about a decision, something that you can share um, where you might not have told your employees before, but this time you did? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. There was one recently. What was it? So one thing is people come to us all the time and want us to gather data for different things. And we had a very big customer, potential customer come and say, we want you to gather this specific type of data. It was a new type of data. And we went back and forth because it seemed like it could be a lot of money. It was going to be a really big customer, but it was also a completely new type of data that we had no other customers for and didn't seem like it would feed into the larger mission. And the timeline was difficult, so it would be really stressful. We'd have to hire a bunch of people or you know, shift to the work. And so ultimately, for example, in that, in that instance, we decided not to work with that customer. But being very clear about that thought process of, okay, this is what came to us. This is what we thought. This is why it would have been a good idea. This was a bad idea. This is how it lines. These are the strategic things that we called on to make that decision, um, just sharing things like that. Well, to what extent was that decision made in concert with the feedback you got along the way? Like, it's one thing to make a decision between your two co-owners or co-founders. It's another to have the people actually are impacted by the decision in a very concrete way in their day-to-day. Yeah, this is another thing we've gotten better at. I think early on, someone comes and dangles some big amount of money, and Alex and I would just say, yes, we will do it. (laughs) We'll find a way to get it done. Sometimes that was the right decision because that money turned out to be something that could power other things. But we also would get then a lot of feedback post-decision of, okay, but this is the effect it had. So we become much better at getting feedback while still being clear that we're gathering feedback, the decision rights live with me and Alex. And it's also been harder going remote because we used to all just sit in a room and hash it out. So one of the things we've been doing is working on, we use Coda and they have this great template called a two-way write-up where someone writes things up and then everyone else can kind of weigh in and add their questions and comments. And then sometimes then you have a meeting because you've sort of surfaced what the agenda should be. So we've been trying more things like that to really gather input as we're making difficult decisions. What would you say are some of the key milestones as you've grown the company from the two of you to more? So number one, expanding from just ballots. We expanded to positions and how to run for office. We built this make a plan to vote tool. Going through 2018, our first big election cycle and that was the first time where I just felt perpetually behind as a leader. It's like, oh, we, we need a customer success manager. <laughs> They're customers, so someone needs to manage them. That can't just be me. Probably then in 2020, expanding to lots and lots of customers, and that's just a different type of scale. Yeah, each each step function of more people, more customers, just requires an evolution of the company and how we manage it that we're, we're still going through right now. Have you made a notable mistake in a decision or, uh, you know, something that you tried to tackle that in retrospect, wasn't that great an idea? It's hard to say. 
there's some tools I've built that have not we have not found a market for that I someone wanted to pay for it, but not lots of people want to pay for it. I still think they're good ideas. <laughs> Maybe we could figure out a better way to execute them. I'll give you one example. There are lots of groups that have endorsements on their websites and they just have a list and it's a static list. Or sometimes even, you know, like President Obama will tweet, here's my endorsements, and it's like a screenshot attached to a tweet. And I thought it should be much easier to just see all these endorsements and be able to filter them and you could tag them and then you could click to volunteer, click to donate. And so we built, we spent some time building that. We have a couple customers for it, but it's not been a huge hit. So there's something missing there uh, that made it not a good decision. I've gotten the feeling that through the data that you built about ballots around the country, that what you have is valuable to other political tech companies who want to do something adjacent, who it doesn't make sense to, to pull that same data together and duplicate what you're doing. How does it work if, let's say I had a startup and I want to do something involving presenting the information on the ballot or using the other data that you gather like that? How does that work? How could I use it if I'm in another company or other enterprise? We work with a lot of groups that are building on top of our data. That's about half of our customers are doing things like that. And some are startups. And for startups, we have a startup discount and we just hope they're wildly successful and then they can pay full price. And then some are really big groups like we worked with Snapchat last year to do this run for office mini that they sent to everyone in the Snapchat platform to say, here are all the positions you can run for. Or we're working with the pipeline platform, which is doing some really great work to recruit people to run for all these down ballot races. That's exciting to me because ideally we wouldn't be duplicating collecting this data. Ideally, we can just be a source that powers lots and lots of different applications. It seems to me like quality assurance, QA, must be a big part of what you do, both you know, in the app itself, but also in the data. What have you built to both in people and in process and tech to make sure that if you're selling data that you're getting it right? Because- it's not only is the data right that you went to get, that where you, wherever you pull it from, there's is it translated right? Is it matched together? Right? There's lots of opportunity for for error, and, and there's lots of opportunity to I assume to automate the correction of that. Yeah, and we're just doing it on such a big scale. We we covered hundred and or we're covering one hundred eight thousand positions this year to give a sense of how much data we're handling. There are lots of different ways that we tackle this. So one thing is we have this cycle right now of we gather the positions that we think are going to be up the next year. And now that we've done this for four-year cycles, we can project forward. These are the positions we think are up in 2022, 2023. Then we gather the candidates. So we, we're matching candidates to positions. And a lot of times that's good quality assurance of um, – you know, we discover a new position on a ballot because positions get created or collapsed all the time. Then we go through and do the election results and those election results become elected officials. So there's a cycle there that QAs the data macro level. Micro level, there are lots of checks we can do that are automated. So things like all these sheriffs have three-year terms. We found two sheriffs in the database in the state who have four-year terms. Is that a mistake? Did a researcher type it in wrong? Or sometimes it's not. Sometimes those are two localities that have their own um, rules and both are equally plausible. But that's a good way to flag, okay, we're going to go through and just check these two and figure out why that happened. So there are also automated things built in like that to just flag differences. 
And then other things, you know, eliminating white space. Now that we're using internal tools more than spreadsheets, it's also no one's typing in. You can type in a candidate and let's say that candidate is running for a position that they've run for before. It's already in our database and it can call them up. And so that way we can also eliminate a lot of errors. What if a customer finds an error? How does that come to you? Or Because I assume that that would be a good source of QA. That's another great source. Customers, also voters. I mean, we just have so many eyes on this. And that's another really valuable thing. So that comes through our normal ticketing system. And yeah, the fact that millions of people are looking at this data. Actually, this year, people can sign up to be part of our ballot review crew. So they can look at their ballots and tell us this is actually wrong or this is the order. And people can sign up for that at our website, too. You said that early on, you and Alex sort of sorted out your roles, trying to figure out who's good at what. Has that changed over time? Audit change further? How, how have you figured out what she has her view over and what you do and what you do jointly? It's definitely evolved over time. I think we're both really happy right now with where it is, but we'll see if it changes. Alex loves talking to people, would be so happy having meetings just all day. And I just find that very draining. So it's great because she just <laughs> has all the meetings and I'm doing the work internally to make sure that we're operationalizing everything that she's talking to people about. What kind of meetings is she having? Like, what do you mean? Uh, customers, partners, press, uh, investors. And, that's, um, and why don't why don't you like doing that? Well, I like doing this. <laughs> this isn't bad. Uh, but I just know myself that at the end of the day, if it's all meetings like that, uh, I think it's just part of being an introvert. It just drains energy in a way that spending a couple hours just working on writing up a memo or something is actually very energizing for me. I assume that at this point in the cycle, it's mostly just executing and making sure that you have what you need for the election. What are you thinking about subsequent to the election about where you want to take the enterprise? The biggest challenge that I see is that we have millions and millions of voters who come to ballot ready the day before the election or on election day. And then that's it. And we don't see them again for another two years. And we've also done a lot of research of people who don't just come to ballot ready, but have volunteer on campaigns and are really engaged with the election. And then it ends and they're just not sure, what do I do next? How do I continue to meaningfully engage? And so we've been thinking a lot about what else do we build in to keep people engaged and building power in their local communities? And it's hard because it's not something you can solve with a click of a button, but it is something where we think providing more data and more structure can help users continue to be involved civically at the very local level. Do you feel like that starts to bring you into overlap with other enterprises? Do you care? How do you think about fitting in into the political tech ecosystem? Yeah, we've been paying attention to overlap we would prefer to be compliments. The way we're thinking about it is we don't want to build a petition tool. We don't want to build a call your senator tool. Those things exist. We don't want to build a CRM. We've always started with what do users want to do? How do we build something for them? If it's value enough to users, we assume it'll be valuable to organizations. So I don't quite know what it looks like yet, but one experiment we're going to run this fall is have people take part in ballot parties, which we've done in the past, where they get together with their friends in their local community, look at their ballot make decisions. But the goal this time of the ballot parties is for people to make a commitment post-election. I'm going to continue to stay involved. So I'm going to see who won. I'm going to talk about, okay, I saw their positions on ballot ready. This is what I agreed with. This is what I didn't agree with. I'm going to actually go and meet with them and talk to them. 
And then ideally, me and my friends will go to a city council meeting or we'll go to a school board meeting and just start experimenting with how do we get people to continue to stay engaged beyond an election and especially engage at the local level where most people just don't know very much about what's going on because it's not being reported in the same way with the urgency and the stories we're used to in terms of the schemas of uh, left versus right at the federal level. I mean, you have the advantage in being used by millions of people. There's not very many uh, folks in the political space who have that, right? Where it's really kind of a very broadly consumer used product and it gives you a very different angle than something that's used by say only super volunteers or campaign staff or something like that. How much do you think about that kind of advantage, which it could be when you're thinking about what to do? We've been thinking about it a lot. And I think to be honest, there's a lot of power and potential in those millions of people. And right now we're not capturing it. Um, that's something I'm hoping we can do 2023, 2024, and really planning for 2025. If we know that we're going to have even more people coming in 2024, how do we get ready to really harness that energy two years from now? How does that intersect with sort of partisanship and ideology? Where do you place your company in politics, given that you know voters are, I'm assuming they're using it, you're probably not filtering for one party or the other. Do you, when you're selling the data, how do you, how do you play? Well, I think my politics, my personal politics are clear just from these stories, but it's very important to me and Alex that Ballot Ready is nonpartisan, both so that we can gather the data. We found that that helps when we were calling these local boards of election and to be this resource for millions of people. My hope is that anyone can come to Ballot Ready, can trust the data and can look at candidates and find people who share their values. And a lot of people use party as a heuristic, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But there are lots of opportunities where races are nonpartisan, where folks are looking at the actual positions or looking at ballot measures. And so, you know, my belief is if we believe in democracy, ideally presenting all this information will help people find candidates that they align with. And that's important to us as a company. Well, are there partners, potential partners that you would not sell the data to? Yeah, we don't sell to hate groups as defined by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we also have a nonpartisanship committee. So they will review partnerships and things like that or raise questions about what should we po be posting on social media or what should we po be posting on our internal Slack to make sure that we're upholding our nonpartisan ideals. So will you sell directly to political parties? We will sell directly to political parties. But just you'll sell to both. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that to be challenging at all, given, you know, the background which is more on the left, to sometimes find yourself in bed with, so to speak, um, folks on the other side? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, sometimes it is personally challenging, but I also just really believe in democracy and feel like our mission is to make democracy work better. How do we provide more information? And that that's a part of it is making democracy work for everyone. As your company is scaling and going well, it becomes more valuable and you guys own it. Do you find yourself thinking at all about like, where do I want to take this in the long run? Do I want to sell it? Do I want to, you know, hold it and bring in more money, try to make it bigger? You know, I remember building a company and, and kind of 
discovering that it had value that I could convert to money. <laughs> and that's being a little bit confusing. You know, where are you on long-term plans about, do you want to own this forever? Yeah, I think confusing is a good word. Because again, I just, this is never where I expected to be. This was not my, my goal was never start a company, make X amount of money. The thing I'm most excited about is this mission and expanding beyond voting. I just think there's such a huge opportunity for investment at the local level. That's the way to grow our democracy is people building power and talking to their neighbors and voting in local elections and running for local office and attending local meetings. And I think we've lost a lot of that. So I could see a path where we find a great partner and they could invest a lot of money. And that sounds great because it'd be great to stop worrying about payroll and waking up some nights thinking about that. But potentially we raise a round of investment. And then I've also just tried to run it. You know, we are the cyclical business, but the goal is that we are profitable over a two-year cycle and that that allows us to continue doing what we're doing. Maybe we grow more slowly. But, you know, when I started learning more about acquisition, because, again, I knew nothing more about this. Some of the uh, advice we got was, you know, are you tired of doing this? If you're tired, like this is an option. But right now I feel really energized. So it's something I, I want to keep growing it however it makes the most sense. So are you raising money now? We are thinking about it. We put it, we, we started fundraising. We put it on hold just because we want to focus on the election and sales and we don't need it imminently. But I think there's a lot we could do if we did fundraise more. So I'm excited about that to go back to that post-election. Do you have direct competition for your core business? No one is collecting data on the scale that we are that I know of. I think there are different parts of it. We, we started working on registry, voter registration, and there are lots of voter registration platforms out there, which is why we stayed out of it for a long time. But groups came to us and said, we think you could do this well and be great to integrate it with everything else you offer. So there's something there. What differentiates your voter registration tool from other ones that you're aware of? The interesting thing about the voter registration space is there isn't much, um, it's a lot of nonprofits. So I think there are different incentives there. And there's just a setup that we have in terms of customer success. And we've built this voter registration API with Snapchat that I think just allows for a lot more. The other thing is we have this database that allows for a really flexible structure to not just talk about big elections, but to talk about smaller upcoming elections and idiosyncrasies and to help people mail back the registration to their local board of elections to the state, things like that. It's still a priority. It's one of the biggest things I want to focus on in 2023 is continuing to improve it and integrate with more state APIs, thinking about how do we even get more states to create APIs. Um, so yeah, still still working on it. I think there's a lot more we could do as a space to improve voter registration overall. It seems like one of the things that's needed in voter registration, I'm not up to date on what whether it exists or not, is like there's a list of voters registered voters, but is there a list of unregistered voters? And how do you find that? And how do you work with that? What is out there? And does that affect, is that something that you need or have? So I think this is a little of what Alloy is doing and Civitech is doing since they acquired them. It's been fascinating to me learning more about voter registration. There's such a long, if you think about it from the user experience, you register to vote and then you don't always hear back right away. Was I successfully registered? It's hard to know. This is something we explored a bit. Is, is there more we can do about voter files? But there are you know, some great established voter file companies. So it's not something we're doing right now. But again, I think there's more we could do to make it really easy to register and get that feedback in a quicker loop. I mean, it feels like if I'm a person who wants to go figure out what my ballot is, it would be nice to see 
am I properly registered? Is that yeah. something they can see through your... They can't see that. Yeah. We're using the Target Smart API, so they're checking through that. Yeah. Do you, do you find people saying there's data errors in that often, or what, what does that look like? Yeah, we do. Just because it's hard to match, you need to match. There's some fuzzy matching that Target Smart does, but still it doesn't always work. And then the voter file is not always updated. It gets updated more frequently as you get closer to the election. Um, and, and then sometimes people get purged erroneously, right? And then some people get purged, yeah. Um, or sometimes it's just wrong. I mean, I just moved to Durham, North Carolina, and I re-registered to vote. And I did it on a paper sheet, and they misread my handwriting. So when I went to go look myself up, it I didn't show up because they'd written my name wrong. They'd written my street wrong because apparently my handwriting's terrible. But, you know, it's difficult. There's then requires some work to correct these things. There's not instant, easy feedback or communication. If you were to look forward 10 years and sold this business, what would be the elements that you would like to have it turn into or continue to be? What are the core things for you that make a good business? My goal is that everyone in the U.S. can go and look up their ballot and does, that there's information about every candidate. This is one of the challenges that we can't solve necessarily right now, but lots of candidates don't have any web presences or they just have a Facebook page or they don't put up any information about their positions. Also, a lot of times the races are uncontested, which is another poor user experience for someone looking at a ballot because you just don't have a choice. And then everyone does that for every election, not just every two years. And then they stay involved. That they're That's just a part of their civic life. How do we expand that participation? How can ballot ready be at the center of that? What about in terms of like the culture? It's really important to me. We've built a transparent culture at ballot ready where people communicate People are committed to the mission. People are committed to excellence. People are committed, one of our values is voters first. People really care about the data and making it right for every single person. And that's the other thing. I mean, so right now we have 380,000 positions in the database. There's some data out there that there's 500,000 positions. That data is from 1992. So I think no one no one knows how many positions there are in the country. Amazing. There's a very long tail that's hard for us to collect right now. And my dream is that we would still be able to collect it for every single person, every single position in the country. What offices have you decided not to collect? Are there any? Right now, there are population thresholds where it's just very difficult to collect. So below 15,000, for example, we don't have many offices. There are special districts that can be very small that we don't collect. Um, and then there's some... The race I ran for local school council, that's actually administered by the school district. It's not administered through a ele regular election body. So that just doesn't fit within our structure right now. But again, this, you know, this is how I got started. Like, I think I would love for it all to be there. My wife is finishing a term as ANC rep in D.C. And I looked, I looked in your database and I was like, whoa, she's in there. She represents <laughs> a couple thousand people. Uh, so I know that some of the local stuff, but I think that's because it's administered by DC. Is there a question that you think I should have asked that I haven't? No, I think you covered it. Can candidates correct their info that you have? Yes, we have a form for candidates to submit additional information or submit corrections. We'll also email candidates ahead of the election to see their page and let us know. What percentage actually take advantage of that? It keeps going up, which is good. So I think it was several thousand last election. I'm hoping more candidates, we need to, a source to link things to. 
because we always want people to see where we got the information. So sometimes they'll submit information that's not available online and we say, you need to make this available online in some way. So I hope that happens more too, that more candidates are just putting information out there for voters so they know where they stand. As you know, there's some efforts to create additional barriers to voting or from the other side of it to make sure that voters are who they say they are, such as, you know, having to bring state identification or a host of other things. Do you collect that information and show it to voters so that they can be prepared with what they need? Yeah, we collect voter ID requirements. We show that as part of the Make a Plan to Vote tool. Yeah, I think that's important. It's also been, I mean, one of the hardest things this year is there's just been so much upheaval in terms of ID requirements, but also we've had a huge redistricting push this year. So that's something I'm very excited about. 90% of voters this year when they use our tool will be able to see their exact sub-district for county commissioner or for city council. Maps are shifting all the time because a judge throws them out and then they get ruled, well, they can be used for this election, not for this election. So that's taken up a huge amount of time just restructuring the database to support well, you can vote under these maps, but then this is the map of who represents you and this is the map you can run for. It's been difficult. I bet it is. I, I was talking recently to uh, E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport, who have a book out about 100% democracy, about sort of compulsory voting, or at least compulsory participation. You can leave your ballot blank, but you might be fined or incented to vote and you know, trying to push to a more Australian method of voting in the event that we could get that to happen, which doesn't seem near term, how would that affect you guys or would it? It definitely changed our turnout games. I think that'd be a fascinating change for campaigns. What's interesting to me is we have so many people who vote already and don't fill out their entire ballot because of this issue of local information. So I think that's a huge opportunity already for 100% participation of just people who vote to vote on everything. Uh, and same for local elections where turnout is 5%, 10%. Um, there's just there's just so much opportunity where I think it doesn't take much investment and things could shift at the very local level. You've indicated that you're like still excited about this. Why keep at this? What's exciting about it for you? I think there are two things. One is mission. Just the more I've learned about this problem, the more I care about it and the more, in some ways, it frustrates me. Why are we doing things this way? How do we get more people to care about local elections and to run for office and to build power in that way? But the other thing is I, I actually love running a startup, which I never knew about myself. I, again, I never knew anything about startups. But it gives you this opportunity to just, like we were talking about earlier, learn new things and evolve. And that's just really fun for me. And I guess doing it with Alex, having a co-founder that, I enjoy working with. It's really fun. And I don't know, if you go work for someone else, I realize you'd have to follow their way of doing things. And <laughs> I've been able to set things up to really suit the way I, I like to do things. Yeah. What skills do you think she has that you don't and vice versa? One thing is Alex just genuinely loves talking to people. Like she is so excited to just ask people questions and find out about them. And will just tell me about these great, I went to this great networking event. I went to this party. It's, it's weird. We're about to come up to Netroots. She's so excited for Netroots um, to go to that. Well, what when she talks about you, she says things like everybody likes Aviva. So it's it sounds like both of you have that knack to some extent. Yeah, but 
if I had to meet all these new people, I don't know. I'm sure they would like me, but. <laughs> <laughs> might might wear you out. Yeah, might wear me out. I mean, we both went to University of Chicago. I think we're both awkward in a very particular way, but Alex has been able to embrace it and um, it's really great at it. Well, it's lovely to get a chance to meet you and talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? No, it's great to meet you too. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Every couple of days I learn about something new going on. So it's very cool to just understand how much is taking place in terms of innovation. It's, a, it's an amazing space with a lot of interesting people, a lot of change. That was Aviva Rossman. She's at BallotReady.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.